inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm glad you're here. Um, A couple of things. Uh, If I look like I've been beat up, if you're watching this, uh, my dog Roxy, or Sean and I's dog Roxy, we were swimming into the Lake Travis, which is like a lake just outside of Austin. Anyway, over the long weekend, we took her out for the first time in a kayak and I was on a paddleboard and the place we rent these things from doesn't allow dogs on paddleboards because it's got like a foam thing on the top. So I'd assume they'd like scratch it up. Anyway, so she went in the kayak with Sean. Well, when he paddled away from me, she did not like it and jumped into the water to come swim towards me. Like, mom, I'm coming to your rescue, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, so then I got into the water to, you know, to show her it's okay to swim and blah, blah. And as she can, this is just because I'm new to having a puppy, I guess as she's swimming towards me in the water, I try to grab her because she has a life jacket on, try to grab her life jacket to get her up. And um, as I do that, she claws my face out. So I have like a scratch here. I had some scratches on my chest and on my neck, they're still visible. And then the one on my eye, like on my ocular bone, kind of the bottom part is by far the worst. It's like a bruise slash scratch. And thank God I was wearing my sunglasses because I think she would have hit me in the eye, but my sunglasses pushed it down there. So anyways, if I look a little beat up, that's why, but we're okay. We're okay. Um, trying to think if there's anything else. I hope you guys are liking this different format not that it's anything new, but for those of you who are new, I asked for the questions for the podcast over on the community tab of my podcast channel. And once a month, we'll do a themed podcast, meaning let's say it's all about OCD or it's all about eating disorders or trauma or whatever. It'll have a theme. And then the other three podcasts or so a month will be more random selections. And today's is a random selection. So let's just jump right in. First question says, Hey, Katie, I'm wondering if it's important to go into the details of self injurious acts when discussing it with your therapist. Good question. My therapist always wants to know exactly how I self injured, what I used, where, etc. But it makes me super uncomfortable to go into such detail. I know I should probably ask her why, but that makes me uncomfortable as well. So I was wondering what your thoughts are on this and why she's doing it. And is it really necessary? Thank you so much. Now, the truth about it is it it's important. I do ask my patients a lot of questions. I don't know about how much detail, but like what you used and where I do ask because when things change, sometimes they do. I want to know and not to, I know this might be a trigger warning for some people who do self-injure, but we can change the thing that we use to self-injure and we can also change the location. And for those of you who've been self-injuring and struggling for a long time with it, you know that that can be true. And so as a therapist who asks a lot of details about everything, this would be no different. Now, if you're not comfortable with talking about it, then that would be something that we would discuss. Like usually something about our self-injury, like the rituals or the reasons or where and all this stuff can feel very invasive or make us feel really vulnerable, you know? And so then that's something to dig into as well. I talked to a lot of my patients about like, what is it about your self-injury or even eating disorder behavior? There's a lot of different things that we do where we feel not fully comfortable talking about it. And like it, maybe it says something about us or 
This is our own special thing. We don't let other people know about it. Whatever the reasoning behind it, I want to know and I want to talk about that as well. And so that's probably why your therapist wants to know all these details because then she can know if it's getting worse, if it's changing, and then ask questions about that. And I know that that's kind of a simplistic answer, but that's really the truth. Now, there were a ton of comments and questions on this. So let's go through those. And then if there's anything uh, left over that I feel needs to be discussed, I'll dig into that. So a follow-up says, this is so interesting. My therapist doesn't want to know at all. And she also doesn't want to know if I went to the ER and stuff. Wow, really? That seems unethical or kind of like asleep at the wheel. I don't feel validated. And I feel like she doesn't care about my health or how I'm doing. Exactly. That doesn't, it's not right. It, um, it is not that we talked so much about this stuff that everything is said now. She had this opinion from the beginning of therapy. So I guess my add-on would be, is there a minimum amount of interest that should be given or is it always not helpful? Is there a perfect level of asking enough and not asking too much most of the time? Because of course, everyone is different. I thought this was a great question. Now, I can't imagine your therapist not wanting to know any, especially if you go to the ER, because self-injury, as we know, obviously is like a physical manifestation of a mental health issue, like a either mental illness or some kind of trauma, right? There's a reason it's happening. It's a coping skill. And so as a therapist, I would feel like I'd be legally obligated to know because you're my patient and I'm responsible for you. And, and like, you know, the legalities of not to get too nerdy, but when you sign those forms, when you first see a therapist, it's called part of that is informed consent. And that's essentially you consenting to treatment and me like at the same time consenting to treating you. So if you were in the ER, I feel like I have to know that's really bizarre to me. And I don't think that that's ethically sound and possibly not legally sound either. Um, so I think the minimum of interest, and of course you have every right to feel like she doesn't care about your health or how you're doing. That's, I don't think that's, I would feel that way too, right? You're struggling with something and when you're having a hard time, she doesn't even want to know or how bad, like, I don't know. I feel like a whole th- a therapist's job is to like ask questions and know as much as possible at all times because that's how we heal, right? That's part of the therapeutic process. Why it's so healing and helpful is we get to dump all of our shit, talk about things that normally we don't feel like we can talk about or things that we maybe have minimized or invalidated for our entire lives. And then we finally have someone we can go to and just talk with and do share all those things that'd be weird to not be able to share those. So to answer your question, is there a minimum amount of interest? I think your therapist isn't, I mean, I don't know. That's some weird, that's weird to me. It's very strange. And I guess on a minimum, a therapist should know how you're doing, how often you're doing it. That's the bare bones. How often is this happening? When did it start? Kind of like timelines of it. Um, And especially if you go to the ER, because, and someone left a comment below this, and it's not one that I'll read because it was more just information for people, but this is very true. They're, they were a nurse and they were saying that the complications of not getting treatment for or getting a cut treated or taken care of can lead to infection and bad things, things like cellulitis. They don't think they said this, but I know I've had patients who've gotten horrible blood and um, infections. You can get like toxic shock, which is like a blood um blood infection, or you can get cellulitis, which is like an an infection of your skin. Now I'm not a doctor and there's 
a bunch of other things you can get as a result of this. So if you think you need to go to the ER, if a wound hasn't healed and it's starting to get red and like radiate out from the wound, please, please, please see a doctor. Please go to the hospital. Please get treated. Um, you might need an antibiotic and, you know, things like that it needs to be cleaned out. We want to make sure that our coping skill doesn't turn into something more intense and harm us in a bigger way. So please take care of yourself. Now, the minimum, yeah, I don't think your therapist is, is asking the minimum. I want to know how often it's happening, when it started, uh, if, if there's ever been gaps in it where you just stopped doing it. I want to know, um, I mean, I want to know a lot of stuff. I'm like the first therapist. I ask everything about it. You know, what you're using, how often, you know, have you ever had to go to the ER, how many stitches? I want to know everything um, so that I can tell if things are changing. And so I guess... But, but you as the patient obviously don't have to tell me everything. Like when you're saying um, the perfect level of asking enough and not asking too much. As a therapist, I really don't think we can ask too much. I definitely know that my patients will give pushback and not want to talk about something. And then I'm just curious about that. Like, okay, it seems like we've hit this roadblock or this defense mechanism. What's, what's coming up for you? You know, what makes this so uncomfortable and things like that um, and talking with them about that. But yeah, I mean, that's that's yeah, I feel like your therapist isn't doing their job. Just putting it out there. Now, another follow up on this said, as a follow up, is it important to keep your therapist updated on the self injury? Yes, very important. I told a couple, I told him a couple of months ago that I stopped, which I did, but it all went bad again. And I started to self injure again. Um, they changed the way that they harm themselves. I'm not going to read it out loud in case it's triggering to someone, but changing the way that they did it. So now nobody can see it. And so all um, so I always tell myself that it's not that bad and that there's no need to tell my therapist because there are no scars and stuff like that. But he knows that I felt really bad again. So I guess he knows that I probably started again. Don't, don't assume that. Do I always have to update him? Yes. Especially because it doesn't really seem like he cared too much about it. Again, strange. I always emphasize that I will stop. And he said that he's not as keen about me stopping immediately as I am. Okay. So he understands. Did you just want to take the pressure off of me? And maybe know that if my depression gets better, then my self-injury gets better too. Maybe. It worked for a couple of months because of what he said, but now I'm back into it. And self-injury is kind of like that. And coping skills are like that. They come and go. It's it's almost like people talk about addiction like this a lot. Well, in the therapeutic realm, I guess. I don't know if everybody does this. But when we're recovering from drugs or alcohol, relapse rates are high. Same with eating disorder behavior, self-injury behavior. It's not that we can't fight it strong enough or we don't have the tools or we don't want to get better. I mean, those things can weigh into it as well, but it's hard to let go of a coping skill that's been helpful. Does that make sense? It's hard to just let it go without having other coping skills in place and think other things that you can use to help yourself feel better. And we all know those healthy coping skills don't work as well. So when we're having a really shit time, it's okay. Relapses are common and there doesn't mean all is lost. The, the important thing I always tell my patients is when you relapse, acknowledging that you slipped up and not beating yourself up about it, getting right back up. Because the problem is, is usually if we have a relapse, we're like, ah, fuck it. It's almost that diet mentality where it's like all or nothing black and white. So we're like, ah, oh, I fucked up fuck it the rest of this week or month or year or whatever versus, oh, I had a hard time right now. Um, oh, sorry. I something in my eyeball. Okay. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Had a hard time, you know, I slipped up, but that doesn't mean later today I have to do it again or tomorrow or whatever, right? I can choose to get up and move forward and try again. And that's really the goal. Um, Now, updating your therapist about it, yes. I mean, I'm surprised that he hasn't asked you about it more often. Um, Don't assume that your therapist will know you started again. I'd like to think that he would, especially because, you know, you talked about it before and you'd asked about it before. But it is important just for for clarity, because making assumptions is just dangerous in any relationship, but especially in our therapeutic one. Um, we want to make sure that he does know this is happening, not just assume that he knows. Um, so yes, I would always update him. And also even bringing up the fact that this was hard and, you know, you kind of felt like, maybe you were letting them down. I don't know what came up for you, but I'm just saying I've had patients not want to tell me stuff because they're like, oh, I didn't want to let you down or, oh, I was so guilt-ridden and disappointed in myself. And it's okay to share that. It's actually important and great to share that because that process tells us a lot about other things in our life, other reasons why we wouldn't tell someone or speak up or come clean about what's happening. Um, Yeah, so that is important. Now, I appreciate that he wasn't so keen on you like having to stop because putting deadlines and enforcing ourselves to to stop uh, immediately um isn't always healthy and that doesn't give us time to replace it right or to understand it a huge chunk of the work that I do with my self-injury patients is just under helping them to and myself also to understand why they're doing it what they get out of it. And all of that information helps us better cater those other coping skills that we're going to use to try to replace it, if that makes sense. And so we need that time. Um, the fact that he didn't seem that interested or cared too much, I'm, I'd have to know more about it. I hope that he seemed interested, but wasn't obsessed about it because some therapists get really scared and are like, oh, this is a suicide attempt. You know, I need to put them in the hospital. They can like overreact. But the fact that he just kind of was nonchalant could be good as long as you felt validated and seen and like he actually heard that you were going through this and that you wanted support. Okay, so just assess those things. And But I think, yeah, updating is important. Relapses are common. Don't no need to beat yourself up. I know you already are, but you can get back up and you can start again. Okay. That's part of the reason why I don't love when people keep track of how many days clean in general from drugs, alcohol, self-injury, eating disorders. I know anniversaries are helpful for people and some people love it. I'm just not that fond of it because then it's like we were three years clean and then we go back to zero and like day one. Um, I was listening to a podcast. This is like a long time ago now, but it was um, Dax Shepard's armchair expert. 
And it was like, I remember it came out in a September, I want to say September, like 2020. Anyway, he relapsed after being, let's say like 12 years clean and sober, I think. And he was just being honest about his process. And then he was like, and now I'm back to day one. And I just kind of hate, I, I know it was hard for him in general, but I just hated that he felt like I'm back to square one, back to day one. Um, you know, like if it can play with our mind and make us think like all that time is lost and like make the next relapse even easier. So that's, you know, part of the reason why I don't love it. Okay. Another add-on says, as an add-on, is this appropriate for therapists to do? Meaning ask about our self-injury. I've recently felt like there's transference going both ways. That would be transference from you and counter-transference from your therapist. As I'm about the same age as her children. Oh, interesting. And I'm going to school to become a counselor at the same school that she did. Um, when I started, I had no idea that she was was a student there previously. Of course not. Then I see her in the middle of the afternoon and she always grabs something to eat and says that I'm the only client she feels comfortable to eat in front of. Hmm, interesting. So part of me wonders if she's overbearing on the amount of details. Um, there could be some counter-transference going on. It could just be, it could be something else. You could bring it up with your therapist. That's totally fair and fine to do. But I don't, I think it is an appropriate thing for a therapist to do, to um, to ask about self-injury. But I think with your thing, no, it says amount of detail. So that's what you're talking about. I was just reading it through again to make sure I wasn't misunderstanding the question and thinking that you were asking if her eating in front of you is appropriate. And I think it's fine as long as you're okay with it. But um, but yes, the asking about it is appropriate because again, it's something that I would assume, even if you're not wanting to, to quit doing it, your therapist should still know what's going on because it's indicative of something else going on, right? Like I've talked about how all these things like um, our depressive symptoms, our anxiety symptoms, eating disorders, self-injury, addiction, shopping, and sex, whatever it is, right? All the stuff that we can be doing, they're just symptoms of something bigger going on. And if our therapist doesn't know that even these things are symptoms that are happening, they might not dig deep into those issues or ask the right questions to get to that root, which is what therapy really the goal of therapy is, is to work on that rooted issue. Um, you, it could be something like, you know, dysfunctional family, as we all pretty much had. Trauma um, could be, you know, our struggle with self-worth. It could be a bunch of different things. So we want to kind of dig into that and figure out what, where that's coming from. And so as, in order to do that, we're going to have to ask some questions. And so I don't believe she's being overbearing. And we had another add-on. It says, I've never had an issue with physical self-harm until I started therapy. It seems like once I verbalized some of the trauma, it made it feel more real and overwhelming. Totally normal. I didn't have the quote unquote guts to tell my therapist what happened because I didn't want her to feel as if I'm worse than when we started. I ended up writing out the entire scenario of what happened and emailing her because I felt like she needed to know. I'm so, I'm so proud of you. But I'm so confused as if it was self-harm in the typical sense or if it was just something that happened that one time. Long story short, I woke up from a nightmare and needed to feel clean. In the cleaning process, I harmed myself and it wasn't intentional to do harm, but I couldn't stop myself. It was just an overwhelming desire to not feel so dirty anymore. I hope this makes sense. Was it self-harm? Is it something that I should be concerned about? Why would it all start once I'm in therapy? These are all great questions. Yes, that's self-injury. Self-injury has a lot of different purposes. Like I've talked about in the past, some of my patients, it's like, to physically feel the emotional pain. For some of my patients, it's to be able to take care of themselves because they had a very neglectful childhood or abusive in some other form where it's like 
no one ever came to my aid. Like if I, like I cut my uh, finger the other day on paper, it's annoying, but no one came to help clean the wound and put the bandage on. And so when we injure ourselves, then we can clean the wound and put the bandage on. And it's kind of like this, uh, giving ourselves another opportunity to mother ourselves or take care of ourselves in a way that we weren't taken care of. So that could be the purpose. This needing to feel clean, especially when it, um, it usually relates, not always, but a lot of time relates to sexual abuse when we were a child. Um, I've had patients shower and scrub themselves until they're raw. And that can be kind of part of that self-injury. So yes, I believe that the that this was a self-injurious behavior. Um, it's something that you should be concerned about and tell your therapist. Like, I'm glad that you emailed. I'm so proud of you for putting it out there continue to talk about it. It may not happen again, but it may. And we need to understand why this took place. And we need to get a better understanding of, of, you know, why it was this activity, why this process, why the showering and need to feel clean. And why did that make you feel clean? You know, that's all important to talk about. So yes, it's important. And, um, and then why would it all start once I'm in therapy? We can stuff things down and like, kind of quote unquote, forget them for a while as a means of allowing us to continue our life, right? It's really adaptive. It means that when shit happens and things make me, you know, things happen in my world that are horrible and painful, that I don't just crumble and like wind up in a ball crying on the floor and can't do it, can't finish school. You don't have friends, you know, can't do anything. That ability to kind of forget and stuff it down repression right repression of these trauma memories allows me to continue and therefore when we finally dig in there and we're like oh my god remember all this stuff that happened that was horrible and so uncomfortable and ooh, right and then all those memories come flooding back in detail some some not maybe like little flashes like flashbacks we're going to be having all the symptoms of our ptsd and all the memories of our trauma and then we need another way to cope so because you're finally opening up and sharing about this stuff and not repressing it anymore, that is why the self-injury happened now. And that's incredibly common. I think in general, we assume, well, I'm in therapy now. I should be getting better. You will. But at the beginning, sometimes it's worse. Almost always it's worse. I feel like even when I go to therapy, I go there and I like dump all this shit. I'm like, I'm having a hard time with this. And this relationship isn't work. And I cry and I, I, I like verbal diarrhea, spill all the stuff that's happening in my life. And then we slowly organize it and then have tools to better manage it. And so at the beginning, though, it feels like a complete mess. Like I've talked about this in the past. If you were a, a fan of Friends, the show Friends, if not, I'll explain. But if you're a fan of Friends, Monica has this closet that's like filled with a bunch of shit. And she's super, super clean and anal about everything else except for this closet. And so... This therapeutic work is essentially like opening that closet and getting all the stuff out of there. And then you have to make sense of it, right? What needs to be donated? What should I sell? What should I give away or whatever? What do I want to keep? Where does it go? It's just that sorting process. But for a little while, you're going to have a big old fucking mess because you just pulled all this shit out and you're just in the messy stage. So hang with it. It does get better. It just sometimes gets worse at the beginning. And I don't even like to think of it as necessarily it gets worse before it gets better. It's more like I have to recognize what happened to me first and and that's hard. And so that initial part is really hard. So hang in there. You're doing great. Um, proud of you for telling your therapist about it and it will get better. Now, 
another add-on. So there are two more. I told you there were a lot. It says, similarly, why would a therapist need to know the details of binge eating episodes? Binges are filled with so much shame for me and sharing the details just brings up so many judgments and hate for myself. I know both binge eating and self-injury are coping skills. So I'm wondering if this would be along the same lines. It definitely would. Again, I'd like to know um, if there are certain foods we binge on a certain time of day. Like I'm looking for patterns, I'm looking for when this started and how long this has been going on. Have there ever been breaks in it? Again, it's for the details of it so we can under- better understand our triggers. We can better understand um you know, maybe what the initial trigger was and when this started. And maybe we can come up with some other coping skills or other ways to deal once I understand like when it's happening and why. And I know there's a lot of shame. Let your therapist know about that. Let them know that, you know, you have so much like guilt and shame and embarrassment. You kind of just want to like curl in a ball and like disappear. Um, letting them know about that. But I still think they're going to push you because it is important for us to know. And then even talking about the judgment that you have and, and part of, part of the process, I always, not always, but for most of my patients, there is especially binges and purges. For some reason, there's so much shame, um, or, and embarrassment surrounding the behaviors and the things that we've done or that we do to, to keep, continue using our eating disorder. A lot of the work that I do with my patients is uncovering the reason behind their eating disorder and helping them to show some compassion for themselves for coming up with this way to cope and this way to get through. And almost like there's this process, the beginning of like thanking our eating disorder for all that it gave to us. And I used to do that in like letter writing where we would just talk it out. Um, yeah, because as, as embarrassing as we can say our eating disorders are and as much shame as we can feel, they really helped us get through. So sometimes we just have to pat our eating disorder on the back and be like, thanks, buddy. I thanks for having my back when I needed it. Thanks for getting me through this. But you know what? This is the point in the relationship where we just, we, you know, our paths divide and we go separate ways. Um, I know that sounds kind of weird, but hating on it and, and only talking poorly about our eating disorder can sometimes just compound that shame. Okay. Um, final add-on says, I don't know if this relates enough, but how is it with eating disorders? Like, is it important? What disordered eating behaviors exactly you're doing or just that you're doing any? Does it make any difference with treatment? Um, in, in parentheses as outpatient. It does matter. It is important because again, eating disorders, just like self-injury, they're shapeshifters. They can change what we're doing, when we're doing it, why we're doing it, how we're doing it, all in order to continue being used in our life. And so as a therapist, I'm always going to want to know as many details as you'll offer up because then that helps us again, better offer up different coping skills, different ways to manage other tools, other resources that I might ask you to, you know, access, whether it's group therapy, dietitian, maybe, you know, I don't know, there could be a bunch of different things, but it does make a difference, but not necessarily in treatment. It's just an important component of treatment overall, because it can help guide it and make sure that it's, uh, specific to your needs. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. Now this one had quite a few follow-ups too. So get ready. This question says, hi, Katie, depression often robs us of all joy. Is there an effective way to combat anhedonia? And if you don't know, anhedonia is a symptom of depression and that's essentially the lack of enjoyment in things that we used to like. How can we motivate ourselves to do things that we used to enjoy when our brain feels no pleasure from it whatsoever? Do we just force ourselves to do it and go through the motions in hopes that eventually our brain will remember how to enjoy it again? 
I used to love painting and playing piano, but now I feel like it's a chore rather than an enjoyable activity. Especially with painting, the thought of having to expend energy setting up and cleaning afterward completely outweighs the perceived benefit of actually painting. I just can't bring myself to even get the art supplies out. And when I sit down to play piano, I plunk around for two to three minutes before getting bored and stopping. It seems like all my brain can do is be on the phone because all other activities are devoid of dopamine, oh, avoid, void of the dopamine that I used to get from them. How can we get ourselves to enjoy things again? Does behavioral activation work? And how do we know if it's working? Thank you. This is a great question and is incredibly common. Now, the the short answer, so motivating ourselves, when we're depressed, motivation is like hard to come by if it's there at all. And so instead of going right to the things that used to bring you joy and the things you used to like to do all the time, I find it to be more beneficial if we start smaller. So I know I've talked in the past about like halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and kind of are taking care of our basic needs. Now we could do that. We could also uh, set really, really small goals. Like I, cause, okay, here's my thought process and sorry, a little scattered, but let, just hang with me. Now, if we have a list of goals, let's say I'm just going to read off like three random goals and then we'll break them down. So let's say my goal is to get to work on time. And then my other goal is to exercise three times this week. And my other goal is to eat three meals. Now, those are kind of like basic things that I need to get done. But let's say get to work feels overwhelming. I already want to shut down. The, the motivation isn't there. I don't, I don't feel, I just can't, right? That even that check, that one checkbox can't do it. So I need to break that one down even smaller. So the goals might be, I need to get up out of bed. Then I need to, you know, get to the shower or walk to the shower or, you know, um, wash my face, put my clothes on. I don't care how small you need to break it down. Breaking those things down into achievable steps does something in our brain because we get to check those boxes. I did that thing. I got up. I drank water. I washed my face. I brushed my teeth, whatever, right? All these steps is that as we check those off, we feel better about ourselves. We feel more motivated. And just that action of doing things and um, succeeding at this list is going to build on that motivation and will help us feel better and be able to continue doing more and more as we can build up to maybe the things that used to bring us joy. And it's almost like by trying to paint or play piano, you're like trying to jump in the deep end and you haven't been swimming for a lot of years. And so you're like, I don't even know if I remember how we need to start in the shallow end and work our way out. And so that's really my advice. I know it's not uh, it doesn't, it doesn't sound exciting. And you're like, but is that really going to bring me joy? It's, it's slow and steady because while we're doing those things, you know, we can also just notice how we're talking to ourselves and fight to change that, right? We've talked about that for, I've talked about it for years, just noticing the negative self-talk that might come up as we even try, like, you know, I can imagine my brain being like, Katie, you're so stupid. Why can't you just do this? Why do you have to break this down to such small tasks? Blah, 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 blah. I have to notice that and I have to stop those thought, thought cycle and need to move it into a neutral place. Like, hey, I'm open to trusting in this process and that it will get better. I just have to hang with it. But right now, this is the best I can do, you know? Um, so that's another thing. Also, you can have like mantras you tell yourself like, oh, it will get better. I can do this, you know, just some encouragement. 
and you can even put on some motivating music or goofy fun music, but there can be a lot of different things we can do to keep ourselves motivated. But I find starting small and having those little to do's can make, can keep us going and remind us that we are good at things. We can enjoy things and we can get things done because there's something about depression. Not only does it rob us of our motivation, but just shit talks us. So that's really my advice. Now there's a comment on this says adding on, how do you enjoy things you used to do again? If you had bad experiences linked to what you used to enjoy. And when you try to do them again, you just can't stop thinking about how those bad things might happen again. When it comes to this, I mean, that sounds kind of like exposure therapy. And I would encourage you to work with your therapist on it and create. So there's two parts to exposure therapy. Now, if something, if we had a trauma happen, like the person who asked this first part of the question, let's say there was a trauma around, you know, piano playing, we're not going to just be able to go back in and play piano and enjoy ourselves in the same way because we're going to be hyper vigilant, right? That's a big trigger. We're in the space doing the thing that harmed us last time. And so of course you think it's going to happen again. That's just human nature. Avoid the things that could hurt me, right? So what do we do? Well, we have to find ways to soothe our system and to calm us down. So when you do feel activated, meaning like you feel hypervigilant or like those symptoms are coming up, does deep breathing work? For some people it does, a lot of us it doesn't, but it could be a go-to. Deep breaths. Then does moving our body, doing that full body shakeout, does that help? Um, Calling a friend, coloring, journaling, what kind of coping skills or things help you feel soothed again and bring you back down to baseline? Could be like cold water in your face, holding an ice cube, just stepping away, getting fresh breath of air outside, anything like that. Consider those things and let's build up those resources so that we have them when we slowly expose ourselves to the thing. So let's say it's piano playing and we create from zero to 10 or zero to 20, these little steps up, like the um, from zero being like, I'm so relaxed, this isn't stressful at all. 10 being like, I'm playing piano and I'm maxed out and I think it's going to happen again and I'm dissociated. What are the steps between that of things that we can do? It could be something like, you know, I listen to piano music and I calm myself down or I visualize myself going to play piano and then I take a break and calm myself down, right? We're going to have these little steps up as we move up to the most stressful thing. Again, there might be 10 steps or might be 20. Some people there's five. It just really depends but build in those steps um, as you move up and then you slowly expose yourself to that step and then another step as you use your coping skills to calm you down and help you help remind you that you're okay and that you're safe. And so that's really how we, how we manage and how we get back to enjoying the things we used to enjoy. Okay. Now there's another add on to this says, in addition, how do you know if you have fun doing something? I don't know if this makes sense, but sometimes I feel like nothing is fun. And I'm just waiting for the time to pass. I feel like gotten so in my head about this that maybe if I didn't think about it, I could just have fun. But I can't stop thinking about whether I'm enjoying any of it or anything, or if I'm just existing, if that makes sense. Especially in social situations, I keep thinking how I can get out, how I can get out of them and I never ever enjoy them. I just want them to be over. And I don't even give myself a chance to see if I might enjoy them. But I also don't know how to stop. This could be same kind of thing, like small baby steps. It could be part of your depression. Medication could alleviate this. I'm curious, I'm working on a video right now about um, alexithymia or like when you don't know what your emotions are or feelings are. And I've talked about it in the past. I can I can probably find that video, but you can probably Google it too um, or look on YouTube. <clears throat> but I'm, I'm curious if it's coming from that um, 
or if it's maybe you know just depression and i'm not saying just depression to like downplay it i'm saying is it just depression is it just the alexithymia maybe it's both um but either way medication's an option and then the other things that i that i offer like starting small not feeling like you have to go all in and enjoy yourself it's more like trying out little things doing things that even if they're not necessarily I don't, it's almost like, I feel like you're putting too much pressure on recognizing whether things are fun or not, if you're having a good time. And I'm, I would rather, cause that's almost like that toxic positivity, right? We're like jumping from, I feel like shit to I'm having a good time. This is fun. I'd encourage you to maybe try to recognize if you're just having an okay time. Is it neutral? Can we be neutral in the middle? Because I think that might be less pressure for you. And it also might allow us to slowly, like kind of that bridge statement idea, maybe it'll allow us to build this bridge over from, I never have fun, everything's terrible, to I actually enjoy myself and this is a really good time, I'm having fun. It'll allow us to build that bridge little by little with like, this didn't suck. That event wasn't terrible. People were actually kind of nice. I'm open to the belief that maybe in the future, I could have fun, but for right now, meh. It's okay to be meh. I think meh is better than this is shitty and it's horrible and I don't have fun at anything. And so I encourage, you know, notice when you're, when you're questioning and worrying about whether or not you're having fun and instead say, Hey, is this like, okay? Am I having an okay time? Is it decent? And if the answer is like, no, I'd actually not enjoying myself, then leave. If you can get out of that situation. If you don't have to be there, don't go there. But giving yourself an opportunity to just be in the middle is going to be okay. Because I feel like it's, we think it's this black or white, all or nothing. And I have to be honest, a lot of things that we do in our lives are just kind of meh, you know, we have to go to a baby shower, meh, you know, there's things you have to go to that you don't have a really fun time at, but you do them. And so I really think, you know, maybe taking away that pressure will, that's my hypothesis that then will feel better. And we actually in the future will be able to have fun doing something. Okay. There's another one says as an add on, what about shattered self confidence while recovering from depression? I used to dance and I was good at it. However, I cannot bring myself back to classes due to my lack of self confidence. I took on board your advice to start small and went to beginner level uh, classes at a different style to build mastery. I love it. And even though it's going pretty well, I'm coming back to my original style. Oh, coming back to my original style seems so impossible. I'm paralyzed even by the thought of it. Can you advise? I mean, I think continuing to do what you're doing and then possibly if you can, trying your your original style at home or maybe a one-on-one kind of class like with just instructor and you so that we can slowly prove to ourselves because what's happening I think is your brain is like I can't do it it's going to be horrible it's going to be embarrassing it's going to ruin everything it's like spiraling out and catastrophizing and so yes we can say like stop 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 that thought cycle this isn't helpful why are we going there but at the end of the day, we're going to have to slowly prove that wrong. And that's really the way out because you said it, you feel like it's impossible. And so I would encourage you to try it at home or try it on, you know, when you can have privacy, try it one on, then move, maybe moving up and you'd have to tell me the steps, but I think trying it on your own is probably the least stressful. Then we're going to try it with uh, an instructor one-on-one until we feel good with that. And then we'll move into like smaller class and then maybe bigger class. 
whatever, however that process would work for you. I think that that, again, it's like those small steps because otherwise we're going to feel, um, you know, overwhelmed. And if even that, if you're like doing it on my own, even feels impossible, then I want you to dig into why question that and and journal about it. What comes up for you? What do you learn about yourself? How come, how come there's a roadblock here? Are you afraid it's not going to be as good as, you know, you you aren't going to be as good as you were before? What would that mean? What if you can't do it anymore? What would that mean? There's got to be some kind of something in there that's, that's stopping us and, and holding us back. Now there's a final comment that said this probably isn't related, but I'm wondering, and this was just an easy question to answer. That's why I added it. Um, I'm wondering how a therapist can still be joyful and happy after all the terrible things that they hear in sessions. Like, how can you still be happy when seeing how so many innocent people suffer from horrible people's actions? People always told me to become a therapist, but that's what's been keeping me from committing. I'm already so unbelievably depressed when I hear something bad happening to one friend. How could I handle my whole day being like that? How can I still be happy when facing these horrible things every day? There are days that it's hard. I'm not going to lie, but boundaries around work and regular life are incredibly, incredibly important when you're a therapist. I think in all jobs, it's important, but not allowing for the bleed over when you're a therapist is what's going to allow you to continue being a therapist. I cannot tell you how many of my friends and colleagues either uh, went to school and then during their internship were like, I can't do this or got their license. And then was like, I can't do this anymore or have been practicing for like five or six years. And they're like, I'm burnt out. That happens all the time. And that's because a lot of people don't have healthy boundaries in place because we care, you know, we get into this line of work because we care about people. We don't get into it to, you know, to, I don't know, make a shitload of money or anything because spoilers, you don't, but it's really rewarding work. Right. And so having those boundaries around work and personal life is going to be really important. And for the most part, I'm able to do that. There's every once in a blue moon, something will really get me or shock me or, or I'll feel for my patient and it will like really hurt me. To, to know that they've been through that. And I hear stuff from all of you online all the time too. And some of it really gets to me. But for the most part, there's kind of this like mantra I have where it's like, that's their life. It's not mine. And thank God they're at least able to get help for it. And that's kind of the way I've always looked at it. And I try to keep that separation so that I can keep doing what I do because otherwise it does get heavy. And if you find yourself struggling, it is different than a friend. I will tell you this. When you're a therapist and you're in therapist mode, sounds weird. It's almost like, any job, you know, even if you're a waitress or like when I was a barista or a waitress, I was still like in work mode, right? You go into work mode. When you're in work mode, you're a different version of you. You're still you, but you're a different version of you. And therapist is like even more intense than that. Like when I'm therapist, Katie, like I don't talk a lot. I let like a silence hang. I I'm considering my next questions. I'm trying to dig in deep. It's just a different thought process. I'm like using a whole different part of my brain. It feels like sometimes. And so having that switch is important to acknowledge and recognize because when I'm with my friends, I'm not that way at all. You know, my friend might be telling me about something their husband or girlfriend or whoever did. And I'm like, that son of a bitch. Like I am reactive. I say how I feel and what I think. And as a therapist, you just the opposite. You do not react. You do not say what you feel and think. You ask questions and you probe to get more information and you sit with it with your patient to let them know that it's okay. So there's just a, an intense difference. So I might be upset about something that happens, you know, with one of my friends, but that wouldn't be the case in my office with my patients because it's different. The relationships are different. 
Okay, let's move on to question number three. This question says, hi, Katie, here's my question. Should your therapist be similar or have similar values to you? I know that usually patients don't know much about their therapists and their personal beliefs, and I agree that they shouldn't. But on the other hand, I sometimes wonder if therapy is more beneficial if certain values are the same. My friend is dealing with anxiety related to a crisis of faith and generally holds really conservative beliefs. I try to talk her out of limiting herself to therapists of only the same faith as her, but if she were to have a therapist who disagrees with her faith-based beliefs, she worries that they won't think her problems are real. Hmm. How would you handle having a conservative client who's very rooted in their faith and different from you? Would you feel the need to refer them out or could you still work with them? I believe that it's up to the patient. Now, I could still work with someone and I wouldn't, I would still believe that because she believes those issues are big and real and she's having this crisis in her life of faith, I could, I believe I could still be an effective therapist. I know, I mean, I was raised in church. I don't go to church anymore. And I don't believe in that stuff, but I understand where it comes from. And I understand how, how vital it is to a lot of people's lives and, and part of who they are, right? So that would not get in the way of me being able to help and me taking her seriously and validating her experience. I, as a therapist, try to never, yes, a strong word, never minimize a patient's experience. I feel like that's the opposite of therapy and I'm, I'm acutely aware and I try not to use words that could be minimizing or diminishing in any way or judgmental, I guess, so that that doesn't happen ever. So, okay, so that's overall. However, should a therapist have similar values to you? It can help um, and not even just values. I think sometimes we want a therapist to to look a certain way or to have a certain, it can be helpful to have a certain background. We can sometimes feel like then they get us. Um, like some patients haven't wanted to continue seeing me because I'm not a parent and they're dealing with children and they don't think that I can help them. Now, do I think I could still help them? Yes. But am I a parent? No. And if they want someone who can meet them there and is like, oh my God, yeah, I had an epidural this and I did that. And my kid did this. If they want that kind of relationship, I'm not their gal. They might need to find someone different. And so that's where it's like to the patient's uh, preferences. What do you want? Do you want it to be a female, a male? Do you want them to be from the same ethnic background? Or do you want them to have like to also be an immigrant to the country that you live in? Like there's a lot of factors you could consider. And like I wrote about in my book, Are You Okay? My first book, I talk about how finding a therapist is not the time to be PC. It's the time to get the help that you need from the person you connect with most. And so if you think it needs to be like for me, you guys know, I usually like a therapist that's older than me by, you know, like in her fifties, I like it to be a woman and I like her to be kind of hippy dippy. I don't like her to be too buttoned up because I just don't really relate to people that are too buttoned up. It doesn't work for me. So those are things that I look for. Is that, you know, uh, politically correct? Maybe not. Do I care if she's religious or not? Um, no, but if she wants to try to make me pray before my sessions, then it wouldn't be a fit, you know? So those are things to think about. And it's okay to want um, people who get you. And I think what your friend is probably saying is that she would prefer to know that they understand where she's coming from. And that's completely fine. Now, I'm like you. I don't think she should just limit herself to that. But if she wants to, that's that's her choice. But I think if she finds a therapist she connects with who she feels gets her and meets her where she's at, she'll feel fine. And we don't 
we don't really need to know if the therapist is even the same faith as her or as uh, maybe they're not even religious, but they doesn't mean that they can't support her. A good therapist can support anyone through anything, really. That's the whole goal of what we do. Sean was telling me he was editing the podcast and I was like, oh, she's uh, running in her sleep or something. And I'm talking about Roxy, our puppy, and she is snoozing next to me and she's making little noises. It's awfully adorable. Okay. He's like, you didn't tell them it was the dog and they're maybe don't won't know what you're talking about. If I ever say she's doing something, most likely it's Roxy. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's, I think I answered all your questions. How would I handle the uh, conservative? Cl- a lot of times when, when people, I mean all the time, but if someone in particular has a faith or a background, I don't understand. I know nothing about, I let them teach me. And I ask questions. I don't make assumptions. I let them educate me on their experience. And that's kind of, in, like I said, in general with therapy, you don't make assumptions. Even if someone, let's say, grew up in the same town I grew up in and also, you know, went to the same church, I'd, I still wouldn't assume that their experience is the same because everyone's perception of the world's different and they're going to see it through their, you know, glasses of life. And I'm seeing it through mine. And so I think just asking and um, letting them educate me is where I would go with that. Now, someone said, um, it's an add-on, says to add-on, what if some of the issues that impact your mental health are politic related? A lot of my issues are intertwined with laws and rules and big organizations and common practices on poverty, disability, healthcare, or transitioning gender-wise. I often feel like if the law or common practices say that certain people are to be treated in a way that I find to be horrible, I don't know, maybe I deserved it. Maybe I should be treated horribly. And the world is just sad, hurt, a sad, hurtful and scary place. I'm not sure how to go on to find a therapist to work on this since it's so politic related and therapy isn't about politics, but your psyche. Again, it's, it's not really, I know it sounds like it's politics related. It's not. It's about your experience with certain laws and certain rules and ways that you were treated. And I know you're like, but that's politics. No, that's people people voted things into, you know, voted things to be, people have acted in ways that were harmful. And that's really where the work is. So I don't think you need to worry about it. I mean, as a therapist, I, it's still, it's all about the impact. It's all about how it affects you. It, yes, it's about those laws or practices or bills or whatever rules. Um, but there's a huge component of it that's the human factor. And that's what therapists live in is the human factor. Because I can tell you that there can be any number of laws in any state or country that I live in, and I'm still going to treat everybody the same. And I'm not going to act and I'm not going to treat anybody horribly. That's a human thing. Um, And so I really think that, that, that you could still get help for that. Letting your therapist know about, you know, what it is, the things that have happened. Because again, it's, I feel like wanting to talk about the laws or the rules is almost like intellectualizing your pain. You're saying, well, it came from this. I don't care where it came from. I care about what happened and how you feel about it. What took place? Tell me. And that's really the therapeutic process. And so that's really, when you go to find a therapist, I want you to find someone that you connect with, that you feel hears you, meets you where you're at, and you feel at least somewhat comfortable in their office. I know it's an uncomfortable situation, but there's also logistics of therapy, like making sure the office is easy to get to, and there's parking that's accessible, and you can get into their office easily. Um, And when you're sitting with them, you just feel as comfortable as you could. 
like it's almost that feeling you get with like a new person you meet where it's kind of awkward, but you're like, I like them. I don't know why, but I like them. I want you to feel that way. And that's what I would focus on. Now there's another question that says, um, as a side question and a person of color or POC, if you guys have seen that acronym, you know, if you didn't know, it stands for person of color. Do you think there is any benefit of having a therapist with the same ethnic background as yourself? I do think there is some benefit. I'm mixed and have a Caucasian therapist. She's sweet and we do get along. But when my cousin, also mixed, tells me about her experiences with a mixed therapist, it seems like they see eye to eye on more things and the therapist is able to relate better um, to life experiences such as growing up with a Caucasian and African parent, which she truly understands because she herself has experienced it. Experienced it. What are your thoughts on this? I think if if it benefits you and that makes you feel more comfortable and you'd like to have that kind of shared experience with your therapist, then I think it's it's a good choice. I think it's a choice you should make. Do I think it's necessary? No. Like if you get along with your therapist and you feel like you're moving forward with things in the way that you want and you feel that connection, that's all that's really important. But again, if it's important for you, like I've heard from a lot of my patients um, and viewers over the years that you just want someone, like I had a, th- a patient, this is years ago, who wanted to see me specifically because, um, and this is kind of funny because it's things that we had in common had nothing to do with eth- like our ethnic background, but she liked that we went to the same school to become a therapist. She was in school to become a therapist that we went to the same school and um, that we were both from Washington state. Now, whatever works for you, whatever makes you feel comfortable, whatever makes you feel like there's a shared experience because again, even if you're seeing a therapist that's mixed, just like you, that doesn't mean they're going to have the same experience, but it could mean that they do. And that there are a lot of these things that they get that someone who doesn't have that same background, you know, will be able to get. And so I know it's, you'd like a cut and dried answer, but I think it's really up to you. If you connect with your therapist and you feel like things are moving forward and you, you feel comfortable and you're working toward goals that are valuable in your life. I think it's fine. But if you feel like something's missing and you'd really like that connection, someone who truly gets your background and what you've gone through, at least to a greater amount than the therapist you have, and you feel like some things are like falling through the cracks, like maybe, uh, I mean, I've even had patients who like certain verbiage they use, like if they're from the South and certain, like there's words that can get confusing and, you know, there could be a language issue. And even though we're speaking the same language, right? So if you feel like things are getting missed and there are experiences that you try to express that just don't translate to your therapist. And so you feel not as heard and understood, then I think it's even, you know, then it's really important that you have someone who has a similar background so that that stuff isn't lost because that's really important. And it's really important for us to feel, you know, heard and understood. And so, those are just some of my thoughts on it. But again, when it comes to picking a therapist, the most important thing is that we like them. We relate to them. We feel like they get us and they listen and you know they hear us. We feel important, all that stuff. We feel safe enough to share what we're going through. Um, and we're working, you know, we feel like things are moving forward. Those are the most important things. And that might mean that you need someone who has the same background as you, but it might not. Okay. Now someone asked this. I love this question too. It's such great questions. You guys says, I would like to add on about language as well. I speak Spanish and English. I was born and raised in El Salvador and I immigrated to the U S when I was 17. Even though I am bilingual, sometimes I have a hard time relating or translating something from Spanish to English because there's just no equivalent. The hard thing is that feelings are embedded with language and cultural experiences as well. 
My therapist is Caucasian. And sometimes I don't know if he can relate because our cultural experiences and language are so different. I've seen him for five years now, and I would love your opinion on this. I love this question because back when I first started my channel, um, in 2011, if you can believe it, um, one of the first members, Mondi, no, it wasn't Mondi. It was actually Liz. Um, so anyway, Liz was German and she told me how her therapist, she, she wanted a therapist who spoke English because even though she grew up speaking German, she also spoke English. She was bilingual as well. And she just felt like she could express herself so much better using English words. So she found a therapist who spoke English. And I think that that's really important. Whatever you, just like the ethnic background and having that, that relatability, if there are, if you want someone who is, is bilingual or Spanish speaking, yes, it's going to limit it's going to be harder to find someone, right? Like my friend Rocio is bilingual. And I, when I remember when we were in school, I was like, I was like, Chica, you're not going to have any trouble getting a job because so many people are going to want someone who speaks. And she's from El Salvador as well, who speaks Spanish and English. And some people are going to want to, you know, speak like Spanglish, where it's just a mix of the words and you can do it all, you know, and, and she does them all fluently. It's amazing. She's super intelligent, super talented. Um, And she was like, really? And I'm like, yeah, imagine, you know, you would want someone to be able to relate to, especially if certain words just don't translate. You can't, because there's such an important component of therapy where we need to feel like heard and understood and like we can express what we need to express. So long story short, find the therapist that fits you best, that works for you. And if you feel like your therapist gets you and it's a couple of words that you've never been able to fully communicate, but that doesn't really hold you back in your process process or in your progress, I think it's okay. But if it's really important for you, like to the one of my first viewers, Liz, when she was like, I just need to be able to say things in English, then you're going to need someone who understands that language as well. And so it might behoove you to find a Spanish speaking therapist who can understand those words that just don't quite translate. Because at the end of the day, we really want you to feel heard and understood in therapy. Okay. Moving on to question number four. This question says, hi, Katie and Kenyans. Hello, hello. Sometimes I'm wondering what a quote unquote normal amount of stress or fear is. Everyone is experiencing stress sometimes, like asking um, a colleague for something, giving a presentation in front of a group of people, driving your car to a new location, walking in the dark. At what point is stress or fear too much for a person? Is the amount of stress that I have for a situation more stress than an average person has? When do I know this? And I hope my answer, my question is clear. English isn't my first language. Greetings from the Netherlands, of course, and is very clear. And I understand. Um, again, another language thing, right? Hard to express ourselves, make sure that we're being understood. It's just so important. Okay. A normal amount of stress. It's not normal. I would say a healthy amount of stress is stress that is motivating. And no, I don't mean frantic push, like we have a deadline and I'm so fucking stressed that I can't think of anything else. And I like, I'm, I'm not sleeping well. I'm not eating. I'm forgetting to take care of my basic needs. That's too much stress. Healthy stress is what gets me up and going where I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to be late for my dentist appointment. I had a dentist appointment this morning. I got it. I better get going. And I'm like, I'm rushing around. I feel a little like, uh, and then I get in the car and I get there. Oh, stress goes away. Stress. People haven't talked enough about like anxiety versus stress. Stress is related to something. If we just have constant stress feelings, it's most likely anxiety, but I'm not here to diagnose anyone, just offering you some hopefully helpful tidbits. So 
that's a healthy amount of stress and stress or fear. I mean, health fear keeps us alive and is, is part of our like fight, flight, freeze. Right. And so that healthy fear would be like life-saving, meaning if I'm walking in an alley in the dark and I hear someone behind me, that's healthy fear and stress for me to be like, and, and check and like run and get in my car. That would be like healthy. And it's also like life preserving. Right. So I think those, it's not about like a normal amount. It's like healthy amounts. Like having it for short periods of time that's situational is fine. Now, if you find your stress or fear getting to the point where you dissociate, like maybe you don't have that much memory of it. Like that happens to me sometimes when I do speaking engagements and I get overwhelmed. I'm like, well, I have no recollection of what happened. Um, That's dissociation. So if we have so much stress or so much fear that we dissociate or that we go into a panic, like have a panic attack, feel like we can't catch our breath, we feel faint, uh, feel like we're like drowning and dying at the same time. Our palms can be sweaty. Our heart can be racing. It can be hard. You know, we're doing shallow breaths, all that stuff. That's not healthy. That's too much. Then we're pushing ourselves out of our, what I would call resilient zone in the middle. We're going up into fight flight or down into freeze, which is dissociation. So, you know, being that, that paralyzed and fear, paralyzed and stress, and that's too much. Um, and so if you're able to function and focus, then you're still in that resilient zone. And that this is why it's so different from person to person. Everyone's, you know, resilient zone or what they call the window of tolerance. A lot of people call it the window of tolerance. What that, that window is going to be open or closed depending on, you know, our own level, like what can we manage, right? We, and we can build up our resilience by connecting with people that we love doing our, taking care of our basic needs, eating, sleeping, drinking enough water. You know, we can do some things to ensure we have a higher level of resilience or a a bigger window of tolerance, but again, everyone's going to be different. And so, yeah, um, let me make sure I answered all those questions. The point, at what point is stress or fear too much? Okay, we talked about that. Is there amount of stress that I have for a situation more or less than the average person? It's hard because everybody's different. Um, yeah, I can't tell you what the average person has. I can just tell you that if you're out of your window of tolerance, it's too much. Um, and so if you just don't feel like you can focus or be present or do what you need to do, that's an indicator that it's too much. Now, there was an add-on to this that says, what do you do if you feel like you can never reach a quote-unquote normal amount of stress? Like when it's either too little and you don't feel motivated at all, and then it very quickly becomes too much. And instead of being motivated, just become paralyzed with fear. I would argue that we don't, our, res, our window of tolerance is like almost non-existent. That's why we go into fight flight. Like we're, um, we're like too overwhelmed. And then we go down into freeze, meaning we're paralyzed. Right. And we, we dissociate maybe. And so I think that's what's happening. And what I would encourage you to do is to do things to build up your resilience. I'm actually working on I want to do a talk and a tour about resilience and, and teaching it, but I have a bunch of stuff in my first book, Are You Okay? And I have a whole chapter in my last book, Traumatized, just about resilience and building it because it's really important for all of us. And I think some things that we can, like basic stuff are our basic needs. Um, are we struggling with an illness? Do we need to go to the doctor? Are we taking our prescribed medication as directed? Are we eating enough? Um, are we eating three or, you know, Every three to four hours, are we eating like well-balanced meals? Doesn't mean healthy or unhealthy. It means well-balanced. 
Are we having fruits, veggies, protein, carbohydrate? Are we having those things? Are we drinking enough water, getting enough sleep? You know, all those kind of basic needs can really improve and build that resilience, open that window of tolerance so that we're not so vulnerable to our emotions. So we're not like swinging from fight, flight to freeze. And so that's really my advice is to do some things to build up your resilience. Oh, you could also find some things that are like breath in, meaning like things that leave you feeling energized. That could be connection with friends. That could be um, going for a walk. That could be petting an animal. Um, any of those things can sometimes help us feel soothed and better. We need to do more of those things and make more time for those things each and every day so that that window gets more and more open. Okay. Now, there was another add-on and said, how would I build resilience to manage a normal amount of stress? If resiliency would be effective in this situation, oh, if resiliency would be effective, yes. Resilience is always effective in our life. It helps us weather life storms and kind of the things that I just mentioned would be the ways that you could build it. And so, so therefore, your daily stress doesn't push you into fight, flight, or freeze. Now, there was a final add-on that says, what are the physical symptoms of stress and can they be similar to anxiety? They, they feel similar. Um, stress, I mean, hormonally in our bodies, our bodies re- release a lot of the same hormones when it comes to us being stressed as well as us being anxious because it's essentially an overwhelm for our system, right? We're putting our system under stress and we can go in, our limbic system is usually activated, which houses a bunch of things. But one of those things is our amygdala, which is the, you know, the king or queen of our fight, flight, freeze response. And when it sounds the alarm, when it's triggered, our prefrontal cortex, like this front part of our brain, goes offline. Now this front part of our brain is is responsible for organized thought and organized actions, right? It uh, is kind of part of our personality a little bit too, which is why when we are in that fight, flight, freeze, we can feel like we do things that aren't like, I don't even, that wasn't me, right? It doesn't feel like it's, ugh, it. we don't feel like ourselves. Um, and so the physical symptoms um, are of stress, heart racing, sweaty, hard to catch our breath. It can be really hard to focus. Um, I don't, I don't know if I've ever heard of anybody stressed out feeling like they can't, like they're going to suffocate or pass out. So that would be more anxiety based. So some, there's some overlap, but there's going to be some differentiation just because like I said, stress is, is situational. We can have chronic stress and that, that essentially means our body never gets a break from being around stressful situations and our window of tolerance is so thin that we, we always feel pushed out of our resilient zone. Um, but yeah, the anxiety can come out of nowhere, can feel like it has no trigger. We don't even know why it's happening. And not that you're asking about this, but the symptoms can be very much the same, but there are going to be some differentiators there. Um, but physical symptoms of stress, uh, sweaty palms, uh, heart racing, uh, difficulty concentrating. We can feel like we, uh, you know, we can feel really fatigued. It can be hard for us to sleep, um, hard to focus like our eyes. Uh, we can feel like indigestion issues with digestion is really common. Like we can have heartburn. We can feel like, you know, really nauseous, nauseous or like we have diarrhea or maybe need to throw up. We can feel all kinds of things like that. It can make our blood pressure go up. There's a ton of physical manifestations of stress and a lot of them are similar with anxiety. Um, but yeah, it's just going to depend on the person. So yeah, I hope that helps. I hope that answers all of your questions. Okay, let's move on to question number five. And it says, hi, Katie, how do you approach patients that don't feel anything? 
My last therapist said I was her most difficult client. Why would they say that? As I never knew how I was feeling, I just knew that I didn't like it. I'm worried about seeing someone new as after a year and a half in therapy, we came to a place of no progress and it stopped there. Thanks. First of all, your therapist should not say that. You're the most difficult client. How is that supposed to... Excuse me? Um, I find that incredibly frustrating and also not very professional. So therapist to therapist, they suck. Um, anyway, okay. So uh, what you're, ex- what I assume you're experiencing is what's known as alexithymia. And I think I have a video about this from like years ago. I might be wrong, but I feel like I do. Um, if not, I will create one. But alexithymia is essentially when we, we don't know how we feel. We, it's really difficult for us to name emotions, if not impossible. And as far as I know, because um, I did a brief, and this is, and when I say brief, I mean like I did a brief Google Scholar search for research on this. And as far as I know, there's no like cure for it. Um, there are like treatments, but there it, n- nothing necessarily to make it go away or to it can improve it and we can slowly work on it but essentially it's it's like its own mental illness kind of and so it's something that we're going to have to improve and manage and work on now the way that i would approach a patient who who struggled with this and didn't feel anything would be to instead of having you try to describe how you feel or put a word to it because feelings charts can work and I've, I've talked about one of my favorites is the feelings wheel. If you just go to feelingswheel.com, it comes up. I love the feelings wheel. It's beautiful and amazing. Um, and it's a great place to start. You're supposed to start in the middle with the, the not more simple emotions, but it's like they're just more basic, I guess. And then you move outwards into more nuanced as you get better and better at it. So how I approach patients is I'll start, I'll have them get the feelings wheel and see if that even helps. Sometimes it doesn't help. Sometimes we're like, I don't know. So I don't know. So I can't pick any. Um, in which case I would ask like how they feel in their body. And I might even replace the word feel if that's like not triggering, but kind of uh, def- it causes a defense mechanism to come up because we're like, I can never fucking remember. I don't know how I feel. Ugh, right. We can kind of get frustrated with our own situation. So instead of using the term feel, I might say something like, you know, um, what are you experiencing in your body right now? Is there any tension? I might even try to guide you. Do you feel anything like more clenched or relaxed than normal? How's your breathing? I would just start checking in with like the physical manifestations of emotions and distress and things like that um, and see what comes up that way. Um, Like I said, the feelings wheel might be beneficial. I also might have a patient start to see if they even can identify an emotion in someone else. Uh, There's a you know, books for kids, even I used to have one in my office because the colleague that I sublet with, like we both shared the office and she was in there three days a week, I was in there two days a week. Anyway, she had a book for kids because she saw children that was like emotions and it showed, you know, anger and happiness and like um, just these facial expressions. And I might even use that just to help to see if you can identify it. Um, And I know that might sound silly and you're like, but I'm not an idiot. I'm not calling you an idiot. I'm just saying that I want to see where this is coming from. Is it that you can't identify it in yourself? Is it that you can't identify in other people? Like where are the boundaries around this difficulty to identify emotion and like name it, right? And I don't really even know if I might also, so that those are some things that I would try. And then I, I might just kind of ignore this for a while. There are some things as a therapist that like I, a patient will acknowledge and say this is happening and I want to validate and 
you know, let them know I hear them. This is, you know, an issue. Let's just table it for a bit. Because sometimes if we focus too much on the problem, it just can get worse and worse and worse because our defense mechanisms keep coming up and we keep shutting down and we don't make any progress. And instead, I might work on other ancillary things and giving you tools to help you in your daily life or maybe things kind of surrounding that issue that I see maybe led to this alexithymia or just the struggle to feel things. Um, I might try one of those. And that's kind of like I've talked about, you know, week after week, I feel like finding another way in another way to, to access something that a patient maybe struggles to identify or struggles to acknowledge. And so instead of going at it head on, and trying to walk right on the front door, I might try to sneak in the back, you know, and that's kind of the way that I would approach this. It's also very common to not know what we're feeling and to struggle to put words to it. I think I've told this story before, but when I was putting together my first book, Are You Okay? As one of the homework assignments, I was going to have my the readers write down, you know, three to five emotions that they felt that day. And that's kind of part of that, that part of the book. And so I don't think we ended up leaving this and I'd have to look through the book again. But uh, my editor was like, hey, can you write out yours and have you know three or four other people in your life write out theirs? And so I asked Sean and my mom and her boyfriend, Larry, and my good friend, um, Joanna, I think. And maybe, I don't think I asked Rocio, maybe I did. But anyway, I asked a bunch of people. And <laughs> the only person that was able to just write them and give it to me was Larry, my mom's boyfriend. He was like, oh, I know what I felt, blah, 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 blah. Wrote him down. My mom, Sean, my friend, they were like, how many? I don't even know what I'm feeling. What do I really have? Can I just put two down? Like there was so much pushback and difficulty. So if you're thinking that, hey, I don't know what I'm feeling and I can't identify it. Something's wrong with me. Nothing's wrong with you. It's very normal. We don't spend all day acknowledging and accepting our emotions that like the amount of emotions that we feel in a day is overwhelming. So we don't have time to do that all the, you know, all day, every day, but we should take time to like almost take stock of what we're going through and just acknowledge every so often because otherwise we end up kind of numbing out and ignoring. And that could be what's going on here, which is why the feelings wheel can help. Um, journaling can also kind of help shake things loose sometimes if we just don't worry about how it sounds or what it looks like, we can just jot it out. Um, that can be really beneficial. So yeah, and your therapist's not, I don't, I'm glad, I hope you find a new one, one that you feel you connect with one that you feel comfortable with and is hopefully good at their jobs because not feeling something doesn't mean you can't do work in therapy, but it is something we would want to work on. Okay. Now there's a comment says to add on to this. What do you do when a patient finds that none of the feelings on the chart fit? And how do you approach patients who know what they're feeling, but have no idea where this feeling is coming from? I think I already acknowledged and answered, like, if none of the feelings on the feelings chart fit, we'd start with like body sensations or identifying it in other people and seeing if any of that, you know, attaches to you. Or if none of the feelings on the feeling charts fit, what is it? Like, what would you describe as a combination of two? You know, we can get kind of creative and mix it up that way. Like, would you like to create your own word for this feeling? Um, you know, I'm fine with that too. What would that look like? What? How would you explain that to someone who doesn't know what that word means? You know, there's things that we can do to make it fit for you. Now, the approaching patients who know what they're feeling, we have no idea where the feeling's coming from. A lot of that's just going to take time talking together. We might not know our triggers. We might not recognize how certain experiences or situations in our life, you know, affected us. We might just be pushing through and you know, going on, stuffing it down. 
And it's not that big of a deal if you don't know where they're coming from at the beginning. I think part of it in identifying and just being more aware of how we're doing using some mindfulness techniques would be really beneficial, you know, doing that body scan, checking in. Um, if we find ourselves having like an overreaction at some point, I'll always ask my patients like what happened that day or did something happen right before? And then I'll say, well, tell me, tell me how the last couple of weeks have been. What did you went on this trip in this date? What was that? You know, and I'll start like using some, I call them little mile markers, but it's like on your timeline of life, there's little markers like, oh, that was the day that you had to go to this birthday party. Tell me what happened that day. Or, oh, that was the day that um, you took off of work and you went to the lake or something. Tell me about that day. And we'll just slowly try to piece it together. It's very normal to not know what's leading up to certain feelings and emotions. But again, it's kind of the onus is on your therapist to kind of ask questions and guide you toward more awareness or realization. And it takes time. Again, totally normal to not always know where our feelings are coming from, but some questioning and just being curious, not judgmental about our experiences in recent situations can help unlock that. Okay, let's move on to question number six. And it says, hey, Katie, can you explain how exposure therapy is supposed to work? I kind of talked about this. So, so perfect. I get nervous easily, but still manage to do the stuff that makes me nervous when I can't avoid it or procrastinate. For example, I get sick to my stomach. My heart starts beating faster and I find it a little harder to breathe whenever I have to leave the house. I can still do it and have and have for a fair bit of years, but it doesn't improve. Same with driving. I had to drive for 75% of my job for years and I still get those same feelings every time I approach the streetlights or other stuff like that. Never been in an accident if that matters. I figure there's a chance that this might get answered. So I feel I need to add this in that this isn't me intentionally trying to do exposure therapy. It's just the stuff that I have to do routinely. And it makes me extremely nervous, but it doesn't get better the more times that I do them. Okay, this is a great question. Now, the reason this isn't actually improving is because you're not doing anything to help soothe your system. So the part of exposure therapy that makes it so effective is that Yes, we expose ourselves to the triggering or uh, stressful or anxiety producing event or, you know, maybe traumatizing in some way. Yes, we expose ourselves to it. However, the most important component is that we do some things to calm our system down when we feel that anxiety or overwhelm rising. So that means that like I would... Maybe I do a full body shake. Maybe I would uh, call a friend. Maybe I would journal. Maybe I would go for a walk. Maybe There's things that I would do that would make me feel not so maxed out, not pushed into that nervousness, uh, trauma response, hypervigilance. Like it would keep me in, a, in my window of tolerance like we talked about earlier, right? So that's the key. That's the therapeutic component because then what that means is then we slowly expose ourselves because you're just going zero to 100 without any tools. So then we slowly expose ourselves to the thing that's stressful, overwhelming, uh, triggering, and we use those things to calm us down. Then we return, we, st- we push ourselves again, calm down, And it's kind of this push-pull, push-pull, expose, you know, be stressed out and then relax. It's almost like, um, almost that progressive muscle relaxation where you like flex it and then relax it. We're kind of doing that over and over and over as a way to prove slowly but surely to our brain and our entire nervous system that 
what we think is scary or threatening actually isn't and we are okay and we have tools to help calm us down in the meantime and so that's how exposure therapy actually works is like proving to yourself that it's not threatening now because you're just pushing through and doing it even though it's super fucking uncomfortable means that time and time again you're actually proving to your brain that it's uncomfortable and that it's bad and that it feels bad and you have a bad time with it and it doesn't work out and you get overwhelmed and we're kind of like proving that it is scary over and over so you're almost like reinforcing it now that's why. And that's why it hasn't been effective and it hasn't gotten better because we can't just expose ourselves to it. And I'm sure with some people, because everybody's different, I'm sure some people like do some of that exposure stuff and they're like, then I'm fine. But for most, we need some kind of way to like <sighs> calm and come back and then try it again. And we slowly expose ourselves, not zero to 60. I mean, you could do what's called flooding, which is when you just like zero to 60, jump in. But again, we have to have those like calming, soothing resources to lean back on. Um, Okay, hope that helps. Now there's a comment that said to add on, how is it supposed to work if you're able to push through, but it's impacting your health? Like for example, you get nervous a lot and it makes your muscles tense and that has been causing you back and headaches. Um, Then it's not about pushing through. Again, I think you're doing too much too fast. It's about this slow, like gradient of exposure. Again, there some people do do flooding. I've never uh, done that with patients. I don't know. I haven't had any patients tell me they've done it or said it was effective. I'm sure it is effective. But in my experience, when it comes to things like this, especially if you're finding it to be too much, it's almost like you're doing too much too fast. So it's that gradient of exposure paired with, you know, coping skills and methods of relaxation that help you come back down, feel calm again. Um, So then we don't end up having muscles tense for so long that we're giving ourselves headaches and backaches. Okay. Someone else said, in addition, can you theoretically do exposure therapy on your own? Like can exposing yourself to your phobia in small amounts regularly help you get over it? Also, how do you know when it's a fear or a phobia and what exactly is the difference or determining factor? All great questions. Now, um, theoretically, you can do exposure therapy on your own. Again, you'd have to build up those resources or or those things that can help you calm down and feel okay you're going to want to build those up and you're going to want to practice using them until you feel good using them and you know that they're calming to your system. So you're going to want to have those. Then, you know, we make our list of, of least triggering to most triggering thing and we slowly expose ourselves to those things as we use those resources little by little, week by week. Um, so technically, yes. Now, exposing yourself to your phobia in small amounts regularly, it can help you get over it. Again, we're going to need those resources and kind of calming to make sure that we're not doing too much. But yes, that could theoretically help and help you get over it. Um, And then how do you know when it's a fear or a phobia? There's no real difference. So I, I don't know if I pulled up. Let me see. The definition of a phobia is, hold on, an extreme irrational fear. So you can, that's kind of why it's a little different when it just comes to like straight up fear is that a phobia is an irrational fear. Like I'm afraid of spiders and there's no real rationale. They don't like come and attack me. Um, I'm sure in some places they could, but that'd be the difference, right? I could have arachnophobia just because I'm scared of them just cause like I'm scared of the dark just cause there's no real reason. It's irrational, but I still have it. It doesn't make my fear any less real. It just means there's no rational just like explanation for it. 
Does that make sense? I hope so. And so there's really no difference um, between a fear and a phobia, except for that a fear could be rational. And if it becomes irrational, then that would become a phobia. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's the main difference or determining factor. Okay. Now the final add-on says, maybe this is related. Katie, what do you think about the fake it till you make it approach when it comes to mental health? Lately, I've made an effort to meet people more and to be more open, which has been kind of hard for me. And when someone asks me to do something together, somehow my default is often to make up an excuse. But now I just say yes before I can think about it too much. But I pretend to be comfortable, even if I'm not. I hoped it would get better the more things that I do, but so far I haven't been very successful. I'm not a fan of fake it till you make it. Faking it till you make it doesn't change the way that our brain thinks about it. And because you're still having a bad time and you're uncomfortable, you're essentially, again, like the person at the first part of this question, you're like reinforcing that belief that you don't like to be out and things are uncomfortable or anxiety producing or whatever. Um, And so that's why it's not like pushing ourselves to do things. We can sometimes push ourselves. Like for instance, a good example would be my mom would never want to go out to a social event. She just thinks she gets anxious about it and thinks like it's, I'm never going to, it's too much work. I don't want to do it. But when she's there, she has a good time. So for her, it's kind of like she has to get over that first hurdle of like, oh, this makes me like anxious and I don't really want to. And it's just too much. It's not because she doesn't like the thing. It's the build up to the thing that she hates. So it's just getting her to do it. Um, but in your case, you don't enjoy it when you're there. And saying yes isn't making it better. And I believe that's because we went zero to 60. We didn't do our little grad, like, you know, gradient or gradual steps up toward that kind of a thing. And it doesn't sound like we have those calming things to do to help us like soothe our nervous system while we're doing the uncomfortable thing. I hope that's clear and makes sense. Um, So yeah, I'm glad that you're making an effort to meet people and do things, but we're going to want to maybe go a little slower and have other things that we do to calm our system down while we push to do more. Okay. And so faking it till you make it to me doesn't work because your brain still doesn't believe it even though you're doing it, if you're still not enjoying it, your brain's like, I still don't enjoy this, right? It's almost like that fake it till you make it when like toxic positivity, or if I'm like talking trash to myself day in and day out, I'm not all of a sudden gonna be like, you're amazing, Katie, everybody's gonna love you. Like that, I'm not, my brain's gonna be like, that's bullshit. I don't believe that at all, right? And so it's never gonna make it. It's just always gonna be faking it. And so I personally do not subscribe to the fake it till you make it approach. I think we have to acknowledge what's going on, what we're really thinking. And again, it's that bridge statementing, like building a bridge to going through that neutral space before we get to the positive space as we slowly move our way um, in a very believable, almost like we have to reprogram ourselves to talk more nicely. That's really what, you know, what that's about. And this, in this case, that works the same too, where you talk more nicely, more neutrally first about situations, you know, calm yourself down, slowly expose, prove to yourself it's okay. And then we're moving through that neutral space into positive where we can enjoy being out with people. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. And this question says, why can't I get myself to share things with my therapist? Hmm. I am six sessions in and I want to start talking about the things that matter and that I need help with, but I cannot get myself to share. I do like her and I trust her, but I still just can't seem to do it. I find myself full of anxiety where to the point that I'm scratching my hand so much I've made myself bleed. Uh Uh-oh. Last session, I kind of vaguely shared stuff about relationships, hoping that she would ask me why I was using they, them instead of she, her, but she didn't. She might just not have picked up on it. However, at one point she slipped 
and said she, and I couldn't get myself to take that chance and say she too. It scares me to share with her that I'm gay and I don't know why. Any advice on how to open up more in therapy and how to not have so much anxiety to the point where I'm scratching so much? Also, why do I want to talk to her so much in between sessions? I feel like I'm going crazy. Thanks. That's a great question. Now, sharing things with a therapist, especially things that maybe, I don't know if you've come out to other people or told anybody else that you're gay, but that can be anxiety producing for a lot of reasons. We can be concerned about how they're going to react or respond to it. We might not even know the language we want to put to it or how we want to talk about it. We might be worried about judgment or our own judgment. There can be a lot of different things going on. And so my encouragement to you is to start journaling about this. Be curious, not judgmental about your process. What's coming up for you? What is it that you're worried could happen? I also like to play it out where you play out the worst case scenario, best case scenario, most likely scenario, like in as much detail as possible. It can kind of help us see what's most likely going to happen. Always do the most likely last. Worst case first, because it's the easiest. Worst case, because we're living in it. Best case, because, you know, against that toxic positivity, we're not really believing it. And then most likely. Um, So play those things out see what comes up and then journal, you know, journal about what you're worried about and why why it's so hard for you, what you think might happen. It's okay to just let it out and see how you feel. And I think in that journaling, you might might learn a lot about yourself. And if you feel comfortable, you can then share some journal entries with her. You could send them over. If you're journaling online, like typing, you can email them. You can bring in your journal and allow her to read a passage or two or a chunk of a passage or something. Um, That could be another way in and, and something that's been really helpful for, you know, other people in our community and also my patients. I've read many journal entries. Um, And then another thing I guess could be asking your therapist or even just maybe it's telling your therapist about this, like that it's hard and you feel like you can't open up. Sometimes we can talk about that without talking about the thing. There's something strange. It's like a weird way to get in. We can be like, I feel anxious. I'm having trouble opening up. That might be easy to talk about um, or easier. Or you can ask if you can email or text in between sessions or what the rules are with that. Um, And sorry if I'm looking off camera, it's because I think my dog is chewing shoes. Roxy, hey, what are you doing? Are you chewing my boots? There we go. It's okay. I'll take you for a walk in a minute. I know. I said the W word. I did. Okay. But that could be another way. You know, if we find out, um, maybe we'll find out stuff by just bringing up this situation and trying to figure out a better way to, to navigate it or asking if we can reach out to them in between sessions through email, knowing that they may not reply or won't reply or whatever their rules are, but seeing if they allow for that. Because sometimes there's something about just like typing something out and sending it out into the ether, knowing someone else is reading it, that can be really helpful in healing. We might be able to say more that way than we can in person. Something about it. It's magic. Um, And the final question, why do I want to talk to her so much in between sessions? I'm curious about like, attachment and like how your parents are maybe you never felt like loved or cared for or heard or understood and maybe you're getting offered that by from your therapist and therefore you know you you're wanting to fill that mom or dad hole with your therapist and so I think that might be why you want to talk to her so much there's interesting things about like counter transference and counter transference in therapy and what that can lead to us, like wanting to be with them all the time, talk to them all the time, see them all the time. It it can really play into that therapeutic relationship 
And that's what makes therapy so magical. And I know you're thinking like, why would that be magical, Katie? Isn't that bad? It's not bad. It tells us something, right? It's indicative of a need that we have that hasn't been met or a relationship we had that was was harmful or something we're getting out of therapy that we haven't gotten out of other parts of our life. It really tells us a lot of information. And so I really think letting your therapist know this is coming up. I know maybe you're not there yet, but maybe this is something we include in our journaling personally is like, why do we think it's coming up? Did anything that I say resonate with you? Or you're like, yeah, that did happen in my life. Like, let's consider that because usually when we want to talk to or see our therapist in between sessions, it has something to do with our attachment. And I have videos about attachment style. I have videos about why, you know, why I can be so attached to my therapist. You can watch those and see if anything, you know, rings true for you because everybody's going to be different. But that I find that to be usually the common thread with this kind of desire. Okay. And finally, question number eight says, hi, Katie, can you explain the differences between dissociation and a flashback? Also, can both happen at the same time? Yes, it can. My recent experience was triggered through a topic and I felt really anxious. During this, I shivered, my muscles were tense, but I couldn't react to the words of another person, but I still, oh, but still hear, heard her. Okay. Dissociation is when we, our brain pulls the ripcord on reality and we can either be removed from self or removed from environment for a period of time. Everybody's kind of different. There are also different like levels of dissociation, like at the very low levels, like maladaptive daydreaming, when we kind of create this this daydream space that we want to live in and we can like want to spend more time there than in our real life. And at the other end of the spectrum is like dissociative identity disorder, otherwise known as multiple personality disorder, where our dissociation gets so severe that we like break off into parts of ourselves kind of. Um, so that's dissociation. And it's when things in our environment either currently or in the past have just been too much for our nervous system. Again, that window of tolerance that I was talking about, the window of tolerance gets so thin that we have the option, right? Fight, flight is up, uh, freeze is down. And if we feel like we can never fight and flight, let's say in the past when we were a kid in particularly, if we were a child when we were abused or hurt in some way, fight and flight is like usually not an option because we're smaller, we're weaker, and we often live in the place where we're at, or we just don't know where we would run to, right? So fight and flight are off the table, we go into freeze and dissociation is part of that freeze. And so that's really what dissociation is. And a flashback is when we flash back to a traumatizing or overwhelming situation. Now these flashes can, it can feel like we are back in the thing and it's happening to us again. We can uh, experience it through like little clips of video or little photos. I can feel like we're flipping through a photo album. Like we just have little still images, but um, we can have bodily sensations, no actual memory. It can be a lot of different things, but it's essentially when we're flashing back to a traumatizing or overwhelming situation. And so these are very different. Dissociation again is like pulling you out of reality when things are too much. Flashbacks when we flash back to a bad you know, a hurtful, harmful, traumatizing situation. Now, both can happen at the same time. A flashback can trigger dissociation. I've never heard of dissociation triggering a flashback, but I could see that maybe that could happen if like we haven't dissociated in a long time and even just the act of doing it reminds us of, it's like triggering of a traumatizing situation. And so we kind of flash back to it that way, but we can definitely feel like um, you said you shivered and your muscles were tense, but you couldn't react. It's like you had a flashback or were triggered. They sent you into flashback. And then because the flashback was happening, it was too much for your system. You, over, you were overwhelmed. You dissociated. 
And so, yeah, that they can unfortunately happen at the same time and they're both incredibly uncomfortable, but with the right help, um, it can and will get better, okay? And a lot of it's like, again, building our resilience. So we kind of open that window of tolerance so that we don't go into dissociation so quickly. And understanding our triggers can help us manage them. And some of that exposure therapy we've talked about can also minimize the amount of flashbacks that we experience. And that is it for today. Thank you so much for listening and watching. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please share it with a friend. Please leave reviews over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast where they allow reviews. Please, please, please. That's super helpful. And keep the questions coming. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you next time. Bye.